0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. This is Kate Midden here in Brussels, where about 8,000 development practitioners, activists, and policymakers have come for the European Development Days. This year's theme, in line with the current global conversation, is gender equality, and the gathering has attracted a litany of high profile speakers. The queens of Belgium and Spain opened the event, the president of Rwanda spoke, heads of international financial institutions either came in person or participated in one of the adjoining social media campaigns. The program is full of sessions called things like Big Data and Gender and Climate and Gender, and there are a lot of practical conversations about important things like finding ways to increase women's participation, leadership quotas, and gender budgeting. But early on it became clear that the common thread that has emerged to tie these issues together has been less about particular policies. It's a larger, ongoing conversation about the fundamental inequality that underpins gender discrimination, violence, and imbalances. It's the inequality of power. We've been having a lot of conversations about what gender equality means when it comes to the EU aid system, both for people on the receiving end of aid and for those working in the industry. So in this episode of Long Story Short, I catch up with Vince Chadwick, our Brussels correspondent, to talk about what the EDDs actually mean for global development and whether they actually matter. We'll also hear from Winnie Bianima, the head of Oxfam, about how they're working to change the power dynamics in their own organization. And we'll also hear from Nidhi Goyal, an activist and comedian who works for gender justice for women with disabilities, about who's been left out of the Me Too movement. And finally, we'll hear a conversation with Vince and European Investment Bank Head of Strategy Maria Shaw-Berrigan about the bank's new gender strategy and how other donors can go about creating one of their own. And if there's anything else you'd like to know or would like to hear, send us a note at editor at Enjoy. Vince, so glad that we are both here at European Development Days. We are here in the press lounge. You just published a story the day before EDDs started about whether and to what extent the EDDs matter. What what did you find in that reporting and what was your conclusion?
1: I found that it depends who you speak to. In Brussels, this is a huge event for Brussels-based NGOs who are basically advocating on behalf of their organization to the European institutions. Because this is an event that the European institutions, the European Commission sets up to hear from people and to have a big civil society space and so the question I had in my story was to what extent do are those uh, learnings that come out of these many panels that we hear, I mean there's I think three or four auditoriums and 20 side rooms.
0: I actually counted earlier, I counted 137 sessions that happened in two days. Yeah,
1: so it's a huge amount of content and that's, a, that's testament to the fact that it, at some sense it does matter because it costs a lot for the NGOs to put this on in the sense that just having a stand costs uh, 1400 euros and having a panel is much more so it's a strategic choice that they make to engage in this forum because they know it's a chance to uh, network and also to get their message across so often you'll hear people standing up in a session and instead of asking a question they'll say my organization just did a report on X. They're trying to get that on the agenda because there's commission note takers in most sessions and every session is recorded either on video or in uh, audio recording for the smaller rooms and all of that knowledge is <coughs> vacuumed up by the commission and then what the european commission's development department devco says is that that informs their policy decisions and obviously i
0: have many many questions about everything yeah. that you just said i mean number one if the stands are that expensive, then which NGO voices are we actually hearing? And then, to how, how much of how many of the ideas, or what percentage of the ideas that kind of come to are facilitated here, wind up influencing? Right.
1: All? So that's one of the concerns that um, Concord, the Confederation of um, NGOs here in Brussels, uh, had. Uh, when they spoke to me for the story they said we're not hearing from the grassroots organizations people love to talk about the grassroots but really if you're a small NGO in the countries that we're talking about chances are you can't afford to have a presence here because um, so, it's
0: not just the booth right it's also the flights the hotels right. the food everything plus 1400 euro per yep. stand
1: and the promotion that goes with it um, a press officer and all, and all those things.
0: In the story that you published, one of the big takeaways <laughs> for me was that the value of the EDDs was largely in the, the ideas that come out of it. It's a little bit, it's not so much here we are grinding out policy, it's what ideas do we have to influence policy and make them better. Right. But how like do the ideas that happen here actually make it? Well, that, that's
1: hard to uh, gauge in the sense that if you're someone's here making a point, they're probably making it in other forums as well. So the extent to which it's all about the EDDs, um, I think, is, is debatable. Uh, but absolutely, I think uh, the... the it, and it, this is the other aspect I was going to mention is the networking side, because you can have as many sessions as you want, but if you manage to corner the right person on your issue from the commission because often commission staff come down just to have a coffee and meet people and see what's going out gone going on in the areas that they cover if you manage to someone ask a question or you spot someone in their name tag at a room and you manage to forge a connection with the person who's handling your subject area or is um, considering whether you know what approach they want to take to a certain issue uh, inside the institutions, that's invaluable for NGOs. So it's kind of a dual thing. There's the aspect of kind of waving your arms around and say, hey, look at me, look at my issue. And then there's the more strategic networking side, which is one of the reasons the organizers are trying to emphasize networking more in future years. And I wouldn't be surprised if a trend in the future is fewer events and more time for networking.
0: It does feel a bit like, where do you look? Especially this year, You know, the theme is gender equality. So everything is about women and gender equity and inclusion, and there's, you know, there's so many interesting sessions, but they're all happening at the same
1: time. Yeah, so one person cannot hope to cover everything, which is, again, a resources issue if you're an NGO trying to be present in lots of different places at one time. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's, a, that's an issue. The, the, the thing about having a focus on gender, I mean, as you and I have been talking about, that puts organizations to the test and it says, give us a really good, NGOs to the test and says, what are you really doing on gender? Don't just tell us about your issue and then add the word gender at the end. Like how, what are you actually doing? Um, and do you, do you have a, a gender action plan? What is the representation of your, your board? Um, what kind of projects are you doing? To what extent do they target um, young girls as well as uh, women.
0: I do wonder, though, what your sense is about how meaningful applying kind of a gender lens or a gender theme to a conference like this is. I think I kind of heard some people express um, equivocation that it could just be a lot of talk or a lot of fluff or something, and I haven't personally have not felt that. I feel like there's been a lot of substance at most of the panels I've gone to about what practically can happen to work towards gender equality. But there is this question about building political will, and I feel like every conversation there is some element of in order to reach gender parity it requires political will. So I guess, how meaningful is the gender theme for this conference, but also is it is it meaningful to the extent that having a giant conference with 8,000 development professionals focus on gender, it, could that
1: garner that political well my answer to that is where are the politicians and we saw at the opening ceremony the Queen of Spain Queen of Belgium Princess of Denmark Um, the President of the European Commission came very briefly and gave a very short speech and left Um, there's the President of Liberia is here Um, ministers I think the Health Minister from Zimbabwe and the Ministerial level is where I really would like to see people uh, being present on in on panels. And I was interested to hear from uh, one NGO that their favourite EDD memory was when the Belgian Development Minister Alexander De Croo came to a session as moderator, and his job was to moderate the panel and to listen to the other speakers rather than to speak himself. And I think that's a, a model that could be replicated if we want to talk about political will bring the ministers and make them the moderator.
0: We need to talk about political listening
1: yeah. as well. Yeah.
0: So looking ahead, you had mentioned that there are a few things that conference organizers are talking about doing next year. What is your sense, either from what you're hearing or your own personal thoughts about what could make this more effective? Um,
1: I'm, hearing, I'm hearing they want to do more networking and how they do that, whether you add a day whether you uh, do fewer sessions, whether you make it longer. Um, I'm not sure how that it would be incorporated. Something that they want to expand, I believe, or something that I certainly personally think works very well and that I'm seeing happen more than um, previous years, because I've been following these events for the past four years or so, is video hookups with developing countries in the, in the little session rooms. So we're not just talking about Cash transfers in Malawi were actually skyping Malawi. In this case, I think it was the this was last year they did it with the European delegation there. But they invited people to the room uh, in Malawi, and they exchanged with us here in Brussels. And I think that's essential that we don't end up speaking in a bubble
0: because it's so easy to just talk in Europe about you know donorship in developing countries, um, but none of that is going to be effective unless you have everyone's voices at the table. Well, thank you, Vince. Thanks, Kate. That was Vince Chadwick, our Brussels correspondent. You can follow Vince on Twitter at vchadw. Up next, I'd like to introduce you all to Nidhi Goyal, the activist and comedian I mentioned at the beginning. Nidhi's amazing. She's taken her activism from her native India global and works in a number of countries to push for the rights of women with disabilities. She's also a comedian who's used her comedy as a tool for advocacy in five countries, She writes op-eds for various international newspapers. Oh, and she's also blind. We had an interesting conversation about the Me Too movement this week. Me Too keeps being mentioned as a catalyst for this year's gender equality theme, but we're also hearing that Me Too has created a conversation, but it's
2: not necessarily global nor inclusive. Here's what Nidhi had to say about it. So I'll particularly speak about um, India and South Asia. The Me Too movement really picked up and collaborated with the global Me Too movement. Uh, But it also ended up being in a space, and this is my personal observation, uh, and not speaking on behalf of any community, but it ends up being in a space where very privileged English-speaking, internet-savvy, Twitter-savvy women are speaking out. It really endangers or falls, you know, it it really, gets into these dangerous waters of what doesn't happen on Twitter doesn't happen at all. And I think that's a little bit of a disadvantage of social media, um, with all the various advantages that it brings. I also feel that that also made many women a little more, while it made them very empowered, because they could reach out to a community and say I'm not alone, and I, you know, we're all of these women coming out and saying me too, it also in some ways we saw made the women um, open or vulnerable to online violence, to name-calling, etc. Which does not mean that we should keep quiet, so I'm very happy that we spoke up. But we also need to then think about mechanisms to tackle the online violence that women who are already vulnerable or at higher risk spoke out about their stories, etc. The third thing about the Me Too movement is where was the diversity in that movement. And this is something um, that we saw as women with disabilities that there were no narratives of women with disabilities being amplified in the Me Too movement. No woman I mean, not, not like no, no, but not not many, the majority of the women's rights um, groups or women who were speaking up never turned around and questioned, saying, hey, um, aren't women with disabilities facing abuse as well? Why isn't anyone speaking up? Um, so I think that one is an active inclusion, one is an in, uh, exclusion, one is an indirect exclusion, where where a proactive step for inclusion is not taken. So I think MeToo was an example where the proactive inclusion wasn't done, and there was a subtle invisibility of women with disabilities. And this is something that, we, um, that I, as an activist, and I've founded uh, an organization, a Mumbai-based nonprofit called Rising Flame. We ran the 16 Days for Ending Gender-Based Violence um, campaign which was linked to Me Too, which amplified the abuse, the, the harassment and the violence that women with disabilities have faced, but really linking that more <clears throat> to the Me Too movement. So I think uh, efforts like these, but smaller efforts, will have to be made to really say MeToo is for all and we're not leaving anyone behind.
0: Oxfam International has been under fire both in the press and by its donors in recent months for mishandling a 2011 sexual misconduct case that involved six of its staff paying for sex in Haiti after the country's devastating earthquake. At the EDDs, Oxfam has kept a noticeably low profile, but the organization's leader, Winnie Biennima, did join a candid conversation about safeguarding, accountability, and sexual misconduct in the aid sector saying that the re-emergence of the 2011 scandal brought about a very painful personal journey, but also presented an opportunity to garner political will that hadn't been there before. Everyone has woken up to our weaknesses, is what she said. Winnie also said that sex abuse is egregious, but it's also a symptom of power imbalances throughout the organization. Here's what that means and how Oxfam is dealing with it.
3: At Oxfam, we have put this issue in the frame of abuse of power. And so we interrogate how we use power in our organization. And so this abuse can be sexual, men with power over women, but it can also be other sources of power that we use to oppress others, to silence others, we are an organization where, we, are, um, where we, we value evidence. We hire very smart people who we were founded in Oxford. We have kids who have been to Oxford and Cambridge and the best universities in the world. And we can have intellectual arrogance. And you can find that in the organization, those who have been to those great universities of the north can say more and crowd out others who come from humbler, less well-known institutions who are from the South. Language, those who speak English very articulately may have more power in the workplace than those who speak English as a third, fourth language. So we're interrogating how, what are our sources of power and how are we using the power we have where we work. So that's one. And, and so the sexual abuse is part of a, a power dynamic. So that's one. Secondly, we say we have values. Every organization has its values. And so we ask ourselves, if we have these values, if we are a human rights organization, why did this happen amongst us? Did we not see it? Why didn't we call it out? Why didn't we act? Why weren't we outraged when it happened and take action right away? So aligning values with our practice, our way of working, ways of working, is something we are now thinking about. What are those ways of strengthening a connection of values and our ways of working? One is to look at how we bring people in. We hire people, we bring them because of their ability to do analysis, to write, to move programs, to manage money. To Do we have tools for checking their values before we bring them in? So this is also something we are looking at when we are recruiting. How do we recruit? When they come in, Do we just assume that they will read the values and practice them? Or do we invest in really training, interrogating, questioning, and getting them to be sensitive to the values and living them? So we found we had really underinvested in that area. People just sign code of conduct when they start to work, put in the file and forget. So now we are saying no. We've taken everybody now through the code of conduct one more time, do an exercise of discussing, questioning, and sign again the code of conduct, and then we must find ways of continuously checking our our behavior against our code of conduct, our values. So those are some of the things that we hope are going to make us Cons- continuously conscious it's like being part of religion if I can use that how do how do religions build their cadres hmm? they have an ideology they keep repeating it they keep checking your behavior against it the, the, some of them even force encourage you to confess when you fail so to be sensitive to, and to admit not to wait to be caught but to yourself admit that I'm failing to live up to my values. This is how religion works. So Those techniques, we need to use them in the corporate space, and I'm saying it with sensitivity here. We need to know how to have a continuous engagement on our values, in a democratic way. Continuous engagement on the values, uh, incentivizing good behavior disincentivizing bad behavior those are the prevention things we need to do and to yeah to make people to have champions of good feminist culture we are going to be listening to feminist organizations we've asked everyone every unit to invite in feminist partners in our organization to talk to us how do you protect victims how do you make a safe space for victims? How do you make sure that you behave as you claim to be? Feminist organizations do this better than us. We, we've been humbled. So we are learning from those partners. We've been giving a check to. We're saying, teach us how we can do this. So those are some of the things. The
0: European Investment Bank represents the interests of European Union member states. EIB is the world's largest multilateral borrower and lender. We caught up with the institution's head of strategy, Maria Shaw Berrigan, about how the development donor is approaching gender equality, both in terms of its programming and its own operations. Here she is chatting with Brussels correspondent, Vince Chadwick.
4: Gender is mainstream into our social analysis of all the projects. We look at projects from a financial point of view and from a risk point of view, but mainly from an environmental, economic sustainability point of view and social point of view. Within this, gender is one of the big priorities that we are looking at. We have been working on gender issues for many years and already two years ago we came up with a clear gender strategy of in what ways, in a very systematic manner, we are looking at the gender aspects of projects. And let me be much more specific. We had for many years being Addressing the protect side, so making sure that our projects were not adding to inequality of girls and women in society. But we are now moving much more into the impact of our projects on women and girls. So, how can we tweak the design? How can we ensure that each one of the projects, be it a private sector operation or a public sector operation, infrastructure or health or education? that it is addressing the specific needs of women and girls. And then the third area where we still have a long way to go but we are already working on is investing in women in particular. So this is about financial inclusion and the empowerment of women in business. Because what we want is to put women in the center, in the heart of our operations, as the actors for development, not the beneficiaries of development.
1: I was in the session on gender budgeting yesterday. And uh, the woman from Uganda, from Florence, from the finance ministry, she made the point that sometimes the worst thing you can do when you're trying to make a gender-specific project or a gender-sensitive project is to create a gender team. Because she says if you create a gender team, that becomes a ticker box for people to go to that floor of the building, see the gender team, and then that's done. But she said donors often think that they're being really clever when they create a gender team because they imagine that they've created people, a unit, and that they're actually empowering and putting the issue forward, but the experience that was shared yesterday was that you can sometimes be pulling people back when you're not mainstreaming, is a word that we mention a lot. How do you see that tension? It was the first time I'd heard someone saying, don't create a unit. Whatever you do, don't create a team.
4: So you have. You can have specialists. They don't need to be women, by the way, to be looking at gender, gender aspects. But what you need to make sure is that in each one of your actions, in each one of your projects, you are looking at it from a gender angle. And that is very much about challenging yourself, challenging the way in which you've been doing projects in the past, and asking the right questions, and not giving in when the answer is not the, the one that you want to hear. So I, I can also give you another example. We've been working on a telecommunication project in, uh, telecommunication project in Kenya. And there it's about access to internet, it's digitalization. So the teams, I asked them, okay, so how is this affecting women differently from men? And they were saying, well, it's open to everyone, so women will have access. And I said, fine, thanks, that's not a good answer. Go back and look into your project and see how you can make sure that it goes beyond for women. So then it took them some time, but they came back and and analyzed that there is today, men are using digital and access to, to Internet more for communication and women were using it for trading so that was a way in which we could be supporting trade and entrepreneurship of women it's small businesses but it is how they are bringing livelihood for their families and creating an example for their communities another area was in the e-health and very much into prenatal and postnatal health they have access to information so that they are better equipped when they're going to give birth and and when they have a, a newborn so l- making the additional effort of looking at how this specific project is not neutral but can go beyond for women is something that we can do and that we are pushing ourselves to do more and more. We're not fully there yet, but it is a process and, and we are in the right path.
1: About the gender action plan? Yeah. I understand there's a component about that which is about how the EIB staff themselves uh, behave and uh, are trained in their perspective and also in your external in the outward side in towards the projects. Yep. Um, where, that's been launched now uh, so what, what can you tell us about what stage that's at and what you've learned in the process of launching the Gender Action Plan? I, uh,
4: what we are learning internally in the in the training with our staff and the the internal discussions, because it's really creating a lot of very powerful dialogues in, inside the, the institution, is that many people were not aware of how, many men were not aware, but also women, were not aware of how our projects were affecting in a different way, way men and women. And that just being gender neutral is not enough. You need to look at it from both points of view and then be active, active in, about it. So that realisation for our own internal staff has been the first step in a process to then integrate and improve in each one of of our projects. What we're seeing is a lot of interest and a a conviction of everyone that what we have to do is bring everyone as actors. Otherwise we were leaving half of the population out of being integrated in the growth of their own country and in the progress of their own country. So it is, it is been a very, you know, an insight into how we were, and how we want to be, and how we are fully committed towards this.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Long Story Short. If you have thoughts, feedback, topics you want covered, or questions you want answered, don't hesitate to tweet us at DevX or using hashtag DevXTV. Or if you want to tell us something a little less publicly, you can get in touch by emailing editor at DevX.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for a live broadcast from DevX World, a gathering of a thousand global development change makers, including First Lady of Afghanistan Rula Ghani, Malcolm Gladwell, Forrest Whitaker, and more in Washington, D.C. More information can be found by searching DevX World 2018.